Hello, and welcome to the A-Side, B-Side podcast. Things are a little bit different today, as I am on my own. Brooke has a deserved day off, and that means that you just get Adam talking to himself. So, be prepared. There's going to be a lot of inner monologue that is now outside of the monologue. Usually when we start out the episode, we talk about what we've watched this week, and Brooke has always watched way more stuff than I have. This week, I have been catching up on finishing Almost Paradise, uh, the Christian Kane series that is getting a second season the day that this comes out, which is on Friday. Uh, Freebie is getting all sorts of notoriety because it now has a Emmy nomination, which no one really saw coming streamer is not that big a deal it's you know amazon's free version uh they weren't supposed to be creating their own work some certainly didn't think something would rival their own amazon prime platform but it has happened the series jury duty they've gained some notoriety and it's almost as if you've got siblings that no one expected the younger sibling to be as notable as the older sibling, but it happened, and it's really cool to see. So without further ado, we will get into today's A-Side, B-Side, and it is episode 144. This is the first one I have done by myself out of 144 episodes, which quite frankly is insane. This should have happened before now. Uh, Brooke's done several by herself and always does all the editing. So this is an adventure for all of us, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. As it is episode 144, we will start with the A-side, as we do on every even episode. And because I'm doing this by myself for the first time, I wanted to have a theme for the episode, uh, and also wanted to have that theme run through both the A-side and the B-side. So it's a very clear theme. I'd love to pretend that you won't figure it out right away, uh, but it is what it is, and here we go. So on the A-side today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite writers, but it's a little confusing because if you've ever listened to the A-side, B-side before, often I mention how I don't like scary stuff. I don't like scary movies. I don't like scary stories. I don't read scary books. I have sleep apnea and night terrors already because evidently when you forget to breathe, your brain does weird stuff. However... Stephen King is one of my favorite authors, and it all goes back to a book that he wrote called The Colorado Kid, which launched the hard case crime company back in the early 2000s, going all the way back to like 2002, 2003, and I love detective novels, you know, the paperback life where it's, you know, a dark stormy night, and of all the offices she could have walked in, she walked into mine. I've always loved that sort of gumshoe, old-school detective stories, you know, pulp fiction. And here was an entire company that was based around stories like that. Dime store novels, you know, throwaway stuff that you would grab if you were getting on the plane. And you wouldn't feel that bad if you left it on the plane and, and you know, didn't take it home with you. It was a single-serving story that probably wasn't going to be read a lot. You were going to reread it. And that was the concept. We we're going to have these like really throwaway detective stories that, you know, are fun. They're pulp fiction. They're they're like 
candy, you know? You enjoy it for a little bit, but you're not getting a lot out of it, and you're certainly not going to say it's an entire diet. And inexplicably, to start that entire company, Hardcase Crime, which was relaunching as a dime novel, you know, pharmacy on the rack, the spinner rack, yet on the way out of the door, they got one of the most famous writers ever, and certainly in the U.S., to write a detective story. And of course, in the most Stephen King way, he made it so much more than a detective story. Uh, it is a brilliant story about people talking about a story, which in of itself is a inception within an inception. It launched the sci-fi series Haven simply because it was a story that didn't really have an ending other than the people telling the story stopped telling it because they told the story as they best they knew it. it didn't have a solution. So it bored this entire series that became about finding that solution. Because of that book, which was a detective novel, I, instead of avoiding Stephen King, have tried to dive into his work. And it is always way more way more depth, way more meaning than you expect. So we come today to the A-side, where we're going to talk about the two versions of Stephen King's book, It. Terrifying book, one of his first books that he wrote it has some weird stuff he's even said that there were things that he would do differently if he wrote it today it came out years and years ago but in the public consciousness there are two visual versions i mean it has i an iconic place in history it's captivated readers for decades it is of course the terrifying tale of a shape-shifting clown named Pennywise. And even that statement feels ridiculous. A shape-shifting clown. I do ever feel that, like, a lot of people's, like, people are afraid of clowns before this, but, like, this made clowns way, way scarier. So, there was a miniseries in 1990, and, of course, a two-movie package that was released in 2017 and 2009. So, the A-side today, we're going to look at both versions uh, explore, you know, what they did right, what they did wrong, their success, and idea would be to say which one is better. I think that both are good, and you have to accept each for what it does well. And maybe I'm being a little too much, you know, dad here, and I don't want to pick a favorite child, but both are really good in their own way. So, in the film version, which came out in 2017, and the sequel, which came out in 2019, director Andy Muschietti focused on the children as characters in the first part, 2017, and then in the second part, when they're adults, returning to their hometown to, once again, confront Pennywise. Uh, the 2017 It film was a you know, blockbuster success. It grossed over $700 million worldwide, which, when looking at where movies are now, when movies like Transformers and Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible, and, like, none of them seem to be hits of that level anymore, because I just think movie industry has changed. People are not going to movies. Pandemic really hit that. All the streaming services, the fact that you can wait two weeks and you can rent it at home and pause it if you have to go to the bathroom, like, movie 
cinema, Hollywood, all of that has changed so much in the last, you know, six years since the first It came out. It received uh, favorable reviews, both critics, audiences. Uh, Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise is absolutely terrifying. And any It movie is going to depend upon how Pennywise goes. Uh, the 2019 version did not match its previous success. I mean, it only grossed $470 million globally, but that's still it's pretty darn impressive. The uh, 2017 version re- received a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes against among critics and an 84% among audiences, which are both pretty high. The 2019 sequel received a 63% rating by critics and a 78% audience score because I don't know what critics just hate on sequels. It's just kind of what they do. When you look at the 2000 or sorry, the 1990 TV miniseries version, inexplicably somehow it aired on TV, which is terrifying. Like, how did that even happen to be on TV? This is a horror movie. Like, it did not have the same ability to do the things that you would do in a movie because you're on broadcast television. This is 1990, so you're not going to be on even on a cable station at that point. I mean, Fox was considered an outlier in 1990. It was NBC, ABC, CBS, and that was about it. Uh, The viewership... Of the broadcast, initial broadcast of the two miniseries was was pretty high, but the one thing that it has held on to is Tim Curry's portrayal of Pennywise. Uh, some found it iconic. Critics did loved his performance. Some did, but others felt that like when you're adapting a horror book, which gets real weird in the second act. And putting it on TV, you're going to have some challenges. I mean, both the TV and film versions of it have their moments. But I think really what it comes down to is comparing Skarsgård and Tim Curry's portrayals of Pennywise. And what separates the two is I think that Skarsgård is objectively horrifying and terrifying. And because you can be in a movie, you can do so much more. There's something about Tim Curry's version that, while not as visually horrifying, it does not allow the same gore and violence. The menacing nature of his clown feels scarier in a way because it is not as graphic. Skarsgård gets to do so much more with with effects and violence and blood and curry doesn't get that same level but somehow his portrayal to me is even more terrifying than scars guards in the more objectively terrifying movie so when looking at the two the 1990 tv version or the and i'll be honest one of the frustrations with the a-side is that often i will mention things that you can't go and watch and finding the tv version of it is hard i mean i didn't even see it on the original broadcast i went to a friend's house who had recorded it off the tv on vhs and that's when i watched it 
So if you have a friend who recorded it, then you're fine. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to find. The film versions, 2017 and 2019, both Stephen King's It's Part 1 and 2, uh, are a little bit easier to find. Uh, but if you can find a way to watch the original TV miniseries with Tim Curry, that level of menacing clown and terrifying clown is definitely worth the time. And that is today's A-side. Now, I mentioned that we were going to do some thematic things this time because it's me and I wanted to have a consistent string of thought throughout the A-side and the B-side. I know sometimes that when it's just one of us, we don't do the A-side and the B-side, but these fit so well together that this time I'm going to do it. So we will move on to the B-side. And as we've talked about the theme, we've got another clown involved. So this case is called The Killer Clown Case, Unmasking the Chilling Mystery of Marlene Warren's Murder. So the Killer Clown Case revolves around a bizarre and awful crime that got some nationwide attention. I don't know if that shocked the nation, but it certainly got some eyeballs on headlines. In 1990, ironically, the same year that the TV miniseries It came out, um, I'm not drawing correlations, but it is unsettling that they both happened at the same time. Marlene Warren, a resident of Wellington, Florida, was murdered in cold blood on her doorstep by someone dressed as a clown. The clown showed up, holding flowers and balloons, rang the doorbell, The door opened, and the clown shot her. The murder of Marlene War remained unsolved for several decades, almost three decades. Authorities were confused. They could not figure out who it was. We did not have enough physical evidence. The public, of course, grabbed onto it because here's a killer clown. The incident happened on May 26, 1990. On that morning, Marlene Warren was at her home in Wellington, Florida, and the doorbell rang. Marlene, who according to neighbors, friends, eyewitnesses, was known for a warm and inviting nature, she, of course, doorbell rings, it's 1990, you open the door. She was confronted by a clown, which, I don't know, I have never opened the door and just had a clown be there, but it has to be a very unsettling moment. The clown was holding a bouquet of flowers and some balloons, as you would expect from a clown. But instead of giving her the balloons or the flowers, the clown aimed a gun at Marlene and shot her at a point-blank distance. The clown fled the scene, leaving the neighborhood in shock and horror. Marlene was rushed to the hospital, and she succumbed to her injuries two days later. I don't know that anybody knows how they want to go out, but I think we all wanted to go quick. And two days later, after suffering from a gunshot wound, seems a horrible way to go. The crime quickly captured media attention and led to the case being called the Killer Clown Case. Even though it got a lot of attention, authorities had a thorough investigation. There were some initial leads, but there was never enough for an arrest or to have the case do anything but go cold. Witnesses provided 
varying descriptions of the clown's appearance, which, understandably, how often do you see a clown? And then you see a clown and you're trying to describe it, you're going to think of all the stuff that you've seen before in clowns, and those things are going to probably make it that much harder to find the culprit. The motive behind the murder was elusive. It was not clear. No, no one really knew. Like, this is a clown. Like, out of nowhere. It remained dormant, but the public consciousness never really gave up. I mean, it's an easy thing. I mean, I can see, you know, you're at slow news day at a you know, local news channel, and somebody's like, hey, what are we going to talk about today? And they got nothing. And they're like, well, hey, well, they still haven't figured that figured out who was the killer clown. And they're like, okay, well, let's just rehash that again. So for over 20 years, the killer clown eluded authorities. However, as we found in many B-sides over the past 144 episodes, technology can change everything. And in 2014, new advancements in forensic technology reignited hopes for solving the case. So detectives from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office reopened the case and revisited old evidence and used these new techniques. It was not an immediate success, however. I mean, it's 2014. You'd think, okay, well, they're going to you know, get some DNA and wrap this thing up. It was not until 2017 when investigators finally identified a new lead. A breakthrough pointed them towards Sheila Keen Warren. Yep, that last name sounds familiar. Who had ties to the victim's husband at the time, Michael Warren. Further investigation revealed that she was married to Michael Warren now, and perhaps that would provide the motive. After sorting through the evidence... Sheila Keen Warren was arrested, and it took until September of 2017, so more than 27 years after Marlene Warren's tragic murder, authorities arrested Sheila Keen Warren in Virginia. The case relied on a lot of circumstantial evidence and some witness testimony, or they had some actual DNA evidence that they didn't previously have. Detectives pieced together a timeline that links Sheila to the crime, suggesting that she carried out the murder disguised as a clown in an attempt to eliminate Marlene and then marry her husband. I personally don't know Michael Warren, but he better be a heck of a dude for someone to murder his wife to become his wife. It feels like a sitcom or no, more like a, like a soap opera plot than actual reality. Uh, there was a trial that actually happened two years later in 2019 because as we have heard many times on the B-side, justice is often not as quick as we expect. But in 2019, Sheila Keen Warren was found guilty of first-degree murder and that verdict finally brought closure after 29 years, almost three decades of Marlene Warren's family hoping for a resolution. And through the new technology, finally she was given that so again today is a solo adventure and i don't often do b-sides but i wanted to push these two together because you've got the killer clown from it and the killer clown case involving marlene warren that fit so closely together for more details you can check out our website a side b side podcast dot square dot site uh, and of course you can check out all of our episodes on there 
and thank you for bearing with me on this solo version of the A-Side B-Side podcast, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, episode 144, Send in the Clowns. <laughs>